Hi, everyone. Thank you, Mazen. And thank you to Madrigal for sponsoring this program. We're going to finish the talk and let's start talking about morbidity and mortality. Not a great icebreaker, right? When somebody stands up and says, let's talk about killing people. So these are data showing that NASH with fibrosis is associated with an increased rate of mortality. On the left, you can see the population comparators for cumulative events, and that's at the very bottom. And as you go from simple steatosis to NASH without fibrosis to non-serotic fibrosis, and then in pink to cirrhosis, that is when you have all the effect of this disease. Now, Mazen explained that the people that are at risk for liver outcomes are those with stage two, stage three, and stage four disease. And I am concerned that most of the guidelines talk about, well, the other ones will not have liver outcomes, but they will have other kinds of outcomes. They will still have cardiovascular outcomes, and they will still have non-hepatic malignancies and things that need to be looked at. So the fact that they don't have advanced liver disease doesn't mean that we have to give them up and that they are okay to go home and never come back. The other issue is that this is a progressive disease. So today they may be okay, but I want to evaluate these people maybe on a yearly basis, maybe every two years, maybe every three years, but not give them a free pass, don't ever come back uh, because the disease could progress. And as somebody who you know has uh, experience with laboratory testing and non-invasive testing, people make mistakes all the time. So if you think that clinically what you're seeing is different than what a single test tells you, repeat the test. Oftentimes you'll find out that the test was wrong. On the right, you see all NAFLD fibrosis stages associated with significantly increased overall mortality. And this risk increased progressively with worsening fibrosis stage. So with again, my same message, if the patient has early fibrosis, they're okay today, they have other things to worry about, but bring them tomorrow and reevaluate them. And this is the data that I was talking about on the left, the risk of liver related death is statistically higher only after progression to stage two disease or higher. And you see there for stage two disease, the rate ratio is 9.57 compared to 1.41 in stage one. And then you go to 16.69 and 42.3 for cirrhotics. On the right, you see among patients with NASH, those with cirrhosis are at greater risk for decompensation, hepatocellular carcinoma or death compared with less advanced fibrosis. So you have stage three on the left, stage four with compensated disease, and then stage four cirrhotic still with compensated disease by child to cut pew scoring, but they already are showing one extra point. They have progressed in some way. And so those could be clinically translated to the beginning of portal hypertension, for example, which makes a difference in between cirrhosis without or with portal hypertension. So overall mortality or liver transplantation, 3% for stage three, and for stage four is 11% for the more advanced stage four or the beginning of decompensation, which is not quite decompensated yet, 58%. Same for the first occurrence of a major clinical event, whether it's hepatic decompensation, or it's mostly hepatic decompensation. Liver cancer, non-hepatic malignant neoplasms, and major vascular events are similar in between stage four with an A5 child Tricot Pew score or A6, 
And because of sample size, there were none seen for non-hepatic malignancies or major vascular events in the A6 group. This is older data from Paul Angulo, and we've all quoted this paper multiple, multiple times. Cardiovascular disease is being the number one cause of death for this population, 38.3%, non-liver cancer, 18.7%, and then the third most common cause is liver cirrhosis and its complications, 7.8%. Now, the change in disease activity in the NAS score is associated with changes in fibrosis. In other words, inflammation is what drives this condition to continue to deposit fibrosis, alter the structure of the liver, and alter its function, leading to cirrhosis and the complications from cirrhosis. So a high NAS score at baseline has been associated with progression to fibrosis stage three and four. So in other words, if we were to do liver biopsies on most people, and I definitely do not advocate this, and we shouldn't really, if we saw those with higher NAS scores with more ballooning and inflammation in their liver biopsies, those are the patients that deserve the closer follow-up. And if we had a way of assessing that inflammatory component and a non-invasive test, that's what we would like to follow. Now there's technologies being developed for that, not part of the purview of today's talk, but there's people that are working on this to try to differentiate what is NAFLD or NASH with or without different intensity of fibrosis. And then the trajectory of this fibrosis change is directly associated with changes in disease activity. So that's what we want to modify. That'll be the last part of the talk. Patient identification. This is simple. If you see a patient, one out of every four will have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And if you see somebody with diabetes, half of them are gonna have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So, you know, my best way of identifying new patients is to go to the endoscopy suite, go through the past medical history and order fiber scans for everybody with diabetes. It's simple. I do a colonoscopy on the side. So what are the things that we can do for these patients? On the left, simple evaluation scores, blood work or wet biomarkers, FIB4, probably the most commonly used, the NAFLD fibrosis score and the APRI are utilized probably less. They have less significant data behind them. FIB4 is part of the guidelines, easy to obtain. There's an online calculator. You can pretty much do it for anybody. You're going to get three different kinds of results. We'll go through those in slides to come. Then dry biomarkers, the imaging techniques. Typical tool that primary care will use and send you a patient for, patient went in for whatever reason, they were accompanying a family member that had an emergency, went through the emergency room and they got a CT scan themselves as well, or an ultrasound. And you know, the ultrasound showed fatty liver, the CT scan showed fatty liver, and then the patient gets referred to us. Much less commonly, people will get MRIs. And definitely we can do MRI with PDFF, with proton density fat fractionation to quantitate the amount of fat in the liver. And then MR elastography, other MR technologies, again, looking at whether they can discern inflammatory activity in the liver. Now, MR technology, while it might be the best test there is out there, is usually the least one utilized, simply a matter of access and cost. So conventional ultrasound and CT scan tend to be the most common imaging techniques. For many of us, 
We have access to vibration-controlled transient elastography or fiber scan, and there are several commercial companies that have machines for this. It is a very helpful test. I tell my patients that it's almost close to perfect, almost, not perfect. It's non-invasive. It doesn't hurt. There is no risk, and it's incredibly cheap. The data is questionable. It's not necessarily better or worse than the wet biomarkers, but it's very, very good for its negative predictive value. So from a hepatology point of view, if your VCTE shows that the patient has no significant stiffness to the liver, that that liver is squishy and healthy, then that liver is likely squishy and healthy. And that's a good thing. If the fiber scan tells you this liver looks stiff, the only meaning of that is that this patient deserves further workup. So the high kilopascal result for stiffness in the fiber scan just means you need to do further workup for this patient. Lastly, proprietary serum testing, and mostly it would be the ELF. Pro-C3 and NIS4 have less data behind it. The ELF is recently approved by the FDA. I don't know how many of us are using it, but we will probably use it extensively. It'll be also maybe a little bit different from the FIB4 in that the FIB4 doesn't cost more to the patient, the ELF will. And then how can we use these non-invasive tests to predict outcome? And on the left, the far left, it's liver stiffness. On the far right is wet biomarkers, blood tests. This is MRI with PDFF and this is ELF. And it's the same natural history that I was talking to you about earlier. As the patients have more fibrosis, their overall survival decreases, and the bottom line will always be the patients with uh, cirrhosis. How often should we do this testing? I think that that is a great question and one that is not necessarily answered by the literature just yet. Most of the data that we get or that we have is about the initial evaluation of the patient, trying to determine, does this patient have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease with or without NASH? And how advanced is the condition in this patient? There's not a whole lot of data looking at repeating these tests yearly, every other year, according to stage, how should we do it? There's not a whole lot of guidance, but if you have a patient, the, the more uh, advanced the disease, the more you should think about repeating the assessment. Fat accumulation tends to change and it may or may not be associated with improvement in histology or with improvement in fibrosis. And that is something that you can follow and it's quite dynamic. You could follow it on a yearly basis or even more frequently. Fibrosis tends to be a lot slower and the initial data would say that you don't wanna look at fibrosis every single year because you're gonna do a whole lot of unnecessary testing. All right, there's a couple of screening algorithms out there. This is the one from AGA. And we start here, primary care, endocrinology, gastroenterology, and obesity specialists. And I would take this with a grain of salt because the knowledge depth of each one of these groups is probably different. And the interest of each one of these groups is probably different. So depending on how well-versed they are, they wanna go through part or whole of the algorithm. As I said, step one is identify the patients at risks. And if your waiting room is open, you can really start by looking at them. So two or more of the metabolic risk factors, 
central obesity, dyslipidemia, hypertension, insulin resistance, or diabetes. Then everybody with type 2 diabetes should be evaluated for fatty liver disease. I'll come back to that in a second. And anybody that shows uh, steatosis on any imaging modality or anybody with chronically elevated liver tests, because NAFLD is now the number one cause for chronically elevated liver tests, although they could have any of the other chronic liver diseases. So the step two is actually try to differentiate what is causing this condition. We send a test of all the liver serologies, we do imaging, and we assess for autoimmune conditions, viral hepatitis, inherited disorders, disorders of iron metabolism, whatever it is, we do ask them about alcohol and some of them will actually tell us the truth. And then we move forward down the algorithm. Step three then will be non-invasive testing. And for this guideline is the FIB4 test, as I said earlier, and it can give you one of three different results. A FIB4 less than 1.3, which means that that patient is unlikely to have significant liver fibrosis. And then a FIB4 in between 1.3 and 2.67, which is the indeterminate risk for these patients. And then those with a FIB4 greater than 2.67. If they have one of the other two, you could potentially stop with a FIB4 of less than 1.3 and, and sort of be done. For the others, you want to get a second test, which for most patients, it'll be a, a VCTE, and you obtain that stiffness. As I said, the patients that have low stiffness, it's the squishy livers, those are good. The negative predictive value of that test is excellent, and that patient is done for today. They'll come back tomorrow for follow-up, but they're done for today. The patients with intermediate risk or with high risk, intermediate being 8 to 12 KPAs and high risk greater than 12 KPAs, those require further testing. The AGA guidelines says refer to a hepatology for liver biopsy or MR elastography or monitoring with reevaluation of risk in two to three years. Okay, my editorial comments. If you're in the yellow category, I don't necessarily do a liver biopsy for most of them unless there's a differential diagnosis to be elucidated. If I have a suspicion that they could have autoimmune hepatitis or something else, I'll do a liver biopsy. Otherwise, I probably will not do a liver biopsy. I will try to get them into a research study through which they will always get a liver biopsy. But I will not do a liver biopsy for somebody that I can follow in the clinic. I think it's just too invasive and not necessarily a good test. While it's still the gold standard, it has a lot of variability, both inter and intra-observer variability and a lot of sampling error. So I'm not a fan of liver biopsies, even though I do them most every morning at 7.30 in the morning to wake me up and wake the patient up. But it's stimulating. It sort of sets you up for a good day when you start the day with a liver biopsy. And if you are in San Diego, everybody gets an MR elastography. But you know, if you're in Denver, you don't, you don't get it because the insurance companies are not gonna cover it. So you get what you can. In my practice, it'll be BCTE. And for the other one, the patient that could have advanced liver disease, I will probably wanna do another dry NIT. In this case, I will push for some sort of MRI. I will still stay away from liver biopsies. I don't do liver biopsies to prove that a patient has cirrhosis. I think that we're beyond that in, in hepatology.
All right, and this is a, the recommendations of the Diabetes Society. And what I want you to focus on are the words on the left. Patients with type 2 diabetes or prediabetes and elevated liver enzymes, the ALT in particular, or fatty liver on an ultrasound should be evaluated for the presence of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and liver fibrosis. Evidence level C, but that is a recommendation for diabetologists. These are the easel guidelines, and we'll go faster through these because they're similar. So patients at risk for chronic liver disease, check history, rule out all the different conditions with the other usual workup. If you find that they have, let's say, autoimmune hepatitis, you refer to the specialist that manages that particular condition. And then if it's fatty liver disease, you decide whether it's alcoholic fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or both, which coexist in many patients. Do a FIB4. If the FIB4 is low, less than 1.30, that patient is done for the hepatology workup, but their care continues for all the other conditions that they have. And if they have FIB4 greater than 1.3, which is the indeterminate and high results, they will go to liver stiffness by transient elastography. And then you use the ELF or add other patented serum tests when available, and you make a decision whether they need a liver biopsy or not, and what kind of intervention you're going to do. Patient perspective. So the most common side effect of chronic liver disease, the most common symptom of chronic liver disease, everybody that ever treated somebody with hepatitis C knows the answer, is to have no symptoms. This is data that talked about self-reported symptoms. And personally, I find it biased because if I'm invited to give my opinion about how I feel, I'm going to say that I feel something, right? And so most of the patients feel fatigue or tiredness, like 99% of you already after a whole morning of listening to people like me, right? You're tired. You have a headache and your muscles are stiff. Your back hurts a little bit. Those are not NASH symptoms, by the way. For the NASH population, fatigue, tiredness, overweight, and abdominal or GI discomfort and stomach pain were the most commonly reported side effects. Clearly, many of these patients will be obese. Many of them will have sleeping problems, obstructive sleep apnea and things like that. But the most common symptom is to feel fine, which is actually sort of like a problem from a provider point of view, because if you feel fine, you're asking me to do all these things for what? I feel fine. I don't want to change. All right. How are we asking them to change? Well, these are the guidelines. So because we have no approved medication at this time, lifestyle and dietary modification is the way to go. So I start by telling the patients to do what I say and not what I do. My second thing is I give them a single sheet of paper that has on a single face all the dietary and lifestyle recommendations because nobody ever turns the page. So the instructions need to be simple. You need to be able to put them on the refrigerator and then you might have a chance to follow them. You believe me, I have had at least three patients that have lost over a hundred pounds just with dietary and lifestyle modification. And I have had about a hundred thousand patients that didn't lose any weight. So while this is effective, it's not necessarily effective for all. If you have access to a dietitian, if the patient can see a dietitian, if they can see somebody that will actually give them guidelines, I have no idea how to cook anything other than grill. You know, I can grill pretty good, but that's about it. So I cannot be giving guidelines on how to prepare um, their vegetables or whatever not. I do know 
that eating salads is a good thing and they shouldn't be eating tortillas, you know, those kinds of things. Coffee consumption. Coffee is fantastic for the practicing gastroenterologist and hepatologist. Why? It makes the liver better and your reflux and other GI symptoms worse, right? So you get to improve the liver health and scope the patient at the same time. So that's fantastic. It's good work. How many cups of coffee? Four cups of coffee if they can get to it. Don't go from zero to four in one week because you're going to end up in the ER with tachycardia, sweating, and hypertension. Go slowly, okay? And if they don't want to get there, okay, they don't get there. But if they want, coffee is good. Which coffee is better? The cheapest coffee that has caffeine is the best, okay? Because the initial data came from the VA. The VA, the veterans to whom we owe so much, they don't go to have frou-frou coffee, okay? So this is regular coffee. Macronutrient composition, less fat, less carbohydrates, and less of less what it's right up on top, reduced fructose intake. Then control daily alcohol intake. If you have liver disease, no alcohol is better than any alcohol. If you want to get into a lengthy discussion about how much alcohol you should have, that means that you drink too much, okay? So my standard recommendation is don't drink any alcohol. If you have a child that gets married, yes, of course you can toast at their wedding. If you have a hundred children that get married weekly, that's a problem, okay? Increase physical activity, walk, run, row, treadmill, elliptical, whatever it is you want, but do something and sweat at it. But because cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death for these patients, make sure your ticker is okay. So if you have heart disease, go see your cardiologist first. So as I said, there are no currently FDA approved therapies for NASH. And so lifestyle and dietary modification are still the cornerstone of treatment. And then research if you can, and if you belong to a practice that has access to research, that is the way to go. Bariatric surgery is excellent and it has improved basically all outcomes of these conditions. Bariatric surgery, unfortunately, changes your lifestyle for good. And some people actually learn how to beat it. Okay, so not everybody's a good candidate for bariatric surgery, but when it works, it is the single thing that works the best for these patients. These are the mechanisms for the drugs that are in development. Our esteemed colleague talked to us about the drug that is being uh, evaluated by Madrigal. There's a ton of other drugs out there. There's a, some combination trials. Uh, the sobering experience though, is that most drugs have failed so far. 23 studies have failed. There is a ton of research going on and we're gonna get it right one of these days or one of these decades, uh, maybe next year. But you know we have a lot of room to go. In the meantime, still no alcohol, good diet and good lifestyle. So in conclusion, chronic and excessive uh, steatosis induces lipotoxicity, inflammation and hepatocellular injury followed by fibrogenesis. NASH with significant fibrosis can progress to cirrhosis and other outcomes with approximately 20% progressing rapidly. When identifying NASH, patients with significant fibrosis, it is critical to screen for metabolic comorbidities, rule out other causes of liver disease and evaluate degree of fibrosis, which can be done in one of the different ways that we talked about. And lastly, we still have no FDA approved therapies. Hopefully that will change soon but dietary and lifestyle modification works for those who actually follow those guidelines.
Mazen and I will be happy to take a few questions.